Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome aboard. And uh, you'll uh, forgive me today for not feeling uh, particularly chipper, uh, given what is going on uh, in, in the world. Uh, I do, of course, have a particular interest in this because I have a, a daughter and five grandchildren in Israel, and my oldest granddaughter uh, started uh, her military service, which for women is two years, just three months ago. And she was uh, based uh, near Gaza for training. By stroke of luck, uh, in this past weekend, she was off. She had gone home. They had get leave once once a month, and her base was one of the first ones that was attacked by the terrorists. And yes, that is what they are: terrorists, not militants. They are terrorists. Uh, seven in her company were killed, and the atrocities that were committed are are unspeakable. They even videoed some of them, the terrorists did, and they're showing it. And hopefully the world will recognize what they did. And look, uh, those videos will be exposed to see just how all of this started and who is to blame. And that whatever retaliation happens is looked at in that proper perspective, seeing what was done of the people who were kidnapped and uh, with all kinds of atrocities committed uh, against them. Anyway, it's a, it's a terrible situation all around, uh, of course, because there will be casualties uh, all over the place. But uh, it is really disturbing how uh, some uh, people are, are just uh, looking at this and cheering on the uh, atrocities that were uh, committed. Anyway, I, uh, I don't want to, to uh, you know, uh, belabor this, but, you know, I did have to mention because it is, it is a gigantic event and uh, can just be swept under the carpet and go on as if nothing is happening uh, today. Okay, but that being said, the world still does go on, at least our world here. So we'll continue. And uh, let me pose a question as I normally do. What will you see if you blow through a straw into a glass of water in which some calcium hydroxide has been dissolved? What will you see? There are also a couple of questions that were left over from last week, but which I now see were subsequently answered by text messaging. And of course, uh, 514-790-800 is the phone number when you can, where you can call with your questions or if you have an answer to one of my questions. And uh, you can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. Uh, yeah, the two questions that were left over from, from last week. It said, a story is told about a chemist who left a bowl of milk for his cat on the floor of the lab. The milk went sour, so the cat did not drink it. And when the cat turned away, it managed to knock a nearby bottle of formaldehyde into the milk. And this led the chemist to discover something called lactoid, and I wanted to know what lactoid was. 
Well, it's a plastic made from milk. It was actually invented by Adolf Spittler, a Bavarian chemist in 1897. He was aiming to make a white material that could be used as an alternative to blackboards. His new product was made of milk curds, rennet, and formaldehyde. It did not replace blackboards, but in time, it was found to be very versatile. It could be molded into shape and easily dyed. Buttons were commonly made of this plastic. So someone did indeed come up with that, uh, uh, that answer. And uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the other question that uh, I asked was uh, about a silver spoon, a stainless spoon, stainless steel spoon and a plastic spoon of the same size being put into a cup of hot water. And with a bit of butter, uh, a bean was stuck to the top of each spoon, roughly the same height. What were they trying to do with this experiment? And the answer, of course, was to test heat conduction. The better the conduction, the faster the water, butter would melt and the bean drops. And it would be, of course, a silver spoon that would conduct the heat uh, the most uh, quickly. And uh, uh, yeah, someone did get that right. Of course, it, it, it was uh, James. James, as, as you know, uh, gets just about everything right. Uh, whatever question I ask, he will know uh, about it. All right, well, talking about uh, asking uh, questions, I did ask one this morning on the trivia show. And I asked about the chemical connection uh, between uh, a refrigerated banana and nipples. Sounds like a strange question. Well, it was a strange question. But the reason that I posed it is because there is an interesting connection and answer to this. You know, the first chemical reaction to which I remember paying any attention was between polyphenols and the enzyme polyphenol oxidase. That was long before I knew anything about chemistry. My mother's remedy for any sort of upset stomach was a grated apple sprinkled with some sugar. And I recalled that it didn't take long for the slivers of apple to turn brown. Well, I didn't give this much thought uh, until I started to teach organic chemistry and uh, made a point of emphasizing practical applications. Oxidation reactions, as the name implies, involve the reaction of a substance with oxygen, and these are a common feature in organic chemistry. The browning of an apple or a banana is a typical example and is related to polyphenols, a class of compounds that occur in many plants and have received a lot of attention because they are believed to contribute to the healthy properties of plant foods. However, if a plant is damaged, polyphenols can react with oxygen and are converted to quinones that then undergo polymerization reaction to form melanin, and that's a brown pigment. In plants, melanin is believed to protect damaged tissues from further damage by ultraviolet light, and from being exploited by insects looking for a place to deposit their eggs. That's the same melanin that occurs naturally in the human body. It's responsible for the color of brown eyes, dark skin, dark hair, and the coloring around nipples. So that is the connection. Now, what are enzymes? Enzymes are just proteins special proteins. They act as catalysts 
meaning that they speed up chemical reactions, but they themselves are not consumed. Uh, polyphenol oxidase is one of these. And uh, it is stored in cells, but in a separate compartment from these polyphenols that I mentioned. But when a cell is damaged by cutting it, such as cutting an apple, or by putting a banana in the fridge, bananas are stressed by cold temperature, then the cells break down and the polyphenol oxidase gets mixed with the polyphenols, the reaction ensues and you get the melanin, you get the brown coloring. A common experiment suggested to children is to treat a cut up apple with various liquids to see the effects these have on browning. And of course, inevitably, they will come to the conclusion that lemon juice stops the reaction. Why? Because enzymes are sensitive to acidity and they tend to function only within a specific pH range and lemon juice is quite acidic. As a bonus, citric acid in the juice can bind metal ions and this enzyme polyphenol oxidase contains copper ions essential for its functioning and citric acid can pilfer them from the enzyme. So now you learned a little bit about polyphenol oxidase and why our nipples are brown, just like the bananas that you put in your fridge. We're gonna check traffic and we'll be right back. Well, someone was just asking about some interesting aspect of chemistry. Someone texted a question. What about the many people whose nipples are pink as opposed to brown? Well, I'm not a nipple expert, but uh, I think it's just a question of the amount of melanin that uh, that forms. If you have a little melanin, it it uh, doesn't go quite as as brown. But nevertheless, melanin is responsible for the color. All right, uh, let me uh, just uh, give you a little background here of a story that we're going to delve into. Uh, Nick is one of our regular listeners. He often asks. Uh, answers the questions that I ask. And this week we were chatting about an encounter that he had. And it was an encounter with something called duck itch. And you can understand why I would be interested in that. I'm interested in anything that has to do with ducks and quackery. So duck itch is right in my bailiwick. So he asked Nick to come on the line so that we can tell all of you what this duck itch is about. Hey, Nick. Hi, Dr. Drew. How are you? Okay, good. So let's have a shot at this. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us exactly what happened. Okay. Well, I, I've been uh, taking advantage of the prolonged warm weather this season. I live on a lake in the Laurentians, and I decided to, to try to finish each, each day with a brisk swim for some, some late exercise in a weightless environment. And uh, so I've been going in every day almost for, for the last two or three weeks. Um, I've, I've never had any, any issues with, with lake water before. And w one night I felt uh, a lot of itchiness in my armpits uh, at bedtime. And I thought, well, maybe I should get myself a new nightshirt. Uh, I didn't think it could be my, uh, my antiperspirant. I've been using the same one sparingly for ages. And then the next day, when I went into the water again and I came out, I broke out in hives from the back of my shoulders to my chest, to my upper arms, my hands, um, my thighs, my ankles, my feet. And I didn't know what to make of it. I, I was pretty sure it wasn't uh, shingles. There was no pain, no localized belt. Uh, but the, the welts were very uh, pink and, 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 and very itchy. And I, I hadn't eaten anything unusual. 
I, I did swallow some lake water a couple of weeks back, but I, I didn't think that would be it. So I, I didn't know what to make of it. So anyway, we did explore this a little bit. And uh, the way that one does it these days is, you know, we do some internet surfing. And it seems that this is a condition known as swimmer's itch. But of course, I like the alternative term, which is duck itch. Uh, the actual scientific term is circarial dermatitis. And apparently, it is caused by a parasite that is released in duck poop. And uh, there's a surprising amount of literature on this. And it, occur, it can occur in freshwater. Uh, it can occur in lake water, especially where uh, waterfowl poop. And uh, when we look at the pictures on the internet, they're very similar to what you encountered, right? Well, for and, a moment, I and... thought it, it might have been blue-green algae, which is, I guess, not the case. And, and then I thought to myself, where's the ivermectin when you need it? <laughs> well, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine is not going to do anything for this. But from uh, whatever I see from uh, from the literature, uh, there are some uh, there are some treatments. Uh, antihistamine creams uh, apparently can relieve well, I, the, the I itch because it's allergic. Yeah, right away. Yeah, <clears throat> because it is a it is a contact allergy. Uh, so yes. the parasite has to be in contact with with the skin. I also see that uh, uh, oatmeal baths are recommended. I don't know how much oatmeal one would have to put into a bath. Well, I like oatmeal as much as that. you do, but not <laughs> not to take a bath in it, right? No. Yeah, uh, ca calamine lotion, which is uh, zinc oxide, uh, also apparently does uh, relieve the the itch. And if it is severe, there are some steroid creams but i guess yours your itch is is gone right it's, I, mean, I, I had a little a little more itch in my feet uh friday night obviously i'm scared to go back in the water um a pathogen like this does it does it require a certain exposure or dosage to, to infect yeah you? uh right uh well of course it depends on how much of of the the poop there is in the water and it seems to, to be more prevalent in shallow water because there you're more likely to come into contact uh, with it. If I could if uh, I could just mention this season, we've had uh, so little rain and, and so much heat that the lake levels everywhere are anywhere from eight inches to a foot lower than normal. Yeah, and this, well, that, this that probably may have something water. to do with it. And do you see ducks in the water? Ducks, uh, mergansers, and loons. Oh, and, yeah, loons are culprits, too. But nobody thinks of, of anything like this when you're looking at a, at a, at a, at a friendly duck swimming by with its family. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But uh, I suspect a dermatologist would know right away. You know, as soon as you say water and itch, I think they would they would know what it is. Well, but uh, <clears throat> I, mean, I think I, we're on the right track. Well, I've had, never had I, an issue with, with lake water, and I'm very happy that that, that you were able to to to. to well, I mean, this is our this, this is our this is our guess, and uh, since uh, it's going away, uh, I think you know we can be satisfied now, that there's no further the, problem the here. May I ask you yeah. a question about the parasites? Some parasites uh, we've learned are able to to uh, evolutionarily take over um, an organism, like a bee. No, or these an these these don't these don't do that. Uh, these actually are, they immediately die as soon as they uh, infect the skin. Okay. So they so don't. I, I, uh, I won't end up speaking like Daffy Duck. 
No, you you won't. You you will not become a parasitic creature, or <laughs> not any more of a parasite than you already are, right? <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Professor. If, if you permit oh, me, okay, Nick. Would you permit me on this rare public forum, on behalf of your former students, students, your many listeners, readers, and friends, to thank you for your invaluable contribution in the interest of, and promotion of public science literacy and critical thinking in general. Well, very nice, Nick. Very nice, and uh, don't don't scratch. It will I know. Go I, away. I, I, I <laughs> tend to, but I I, I I can't do that. It's, it's worse to okay. break the skin surface. Thank you. We're, okay. Bye. Uh, okay, I, I think we do have uh, someone on the line, Elaine, who has an answer to my question. Elaine? Elaine? We've lost Elaine. Uh, how about Kenny? Is Kenny on the line still? Hi, Joe. Hi. How are you doing? Okay, you got an answer. For the... What would you see when you blow through a straw into a solution of calcium hydroxide? What you would, would you see, see the hollow material, cyclotube, also known as tubular cystitis. What? <laughs> you know, you blow to the tube, you will see the uh, water, you will see the uh, H2O water, you know? Right? Well, of course you would see water. You're blowing into water. Yes. But what would what what would the calcium hydroxide do to your breath? It will uh, calculate your uh, your cycle. No, no, no. You're you're totally on the wrong track. All right. Well, of course, uh, James is on the right track, and he has texted in the the answer, correct answer, as he always does. When you blow into a solution of calcium hydroxide. Of course, in your exhaled breath, you have carbon dioxide, which will react with the calcium hydroxide to form calcium carbonate. And you know what calcium carbonate is? That's chalk. So the solution will turn chalky white. And this is a test for carbon dioxide in your breath. But now it's time to listen to the news. You're listening to Dr. Joshua. We'll be right back. All right, another question for you, since the last one was indeed answered. Uh, the discovery of uh, King Tut's tomb, that was a big deal. The archaeologist was Howard Carter, but uh, it was all financed by Lord Carnarvon. And as you know, there's something called the Mummy's Curse, supposedly that a number of people who were involved in the discovery and the opening of the tomb died under unusual circumstances. And Lord Carnivore's death soon after discovering King Tut's tomb uh, was set to be due to the mummy's curse. Well, what did Lord Carnivore actually die from? So the man who financed the discovery of King Tut's tomb died. Uh, the story is that the mummy got him to the curse. But the question is, exactly what did Lord Carnarvon die from? If you know the answer, you can text us to 514-800 or to uh, call at 514-790-0800. And I think we have Kim on the line with a question. Kim? Yes. Hi. Oh, hello? Go ahead. Yeah. I've been taking vitamin D 
the doctor tells me all the time to take a thousand, and I cannot take a thousand, and I could only take four hundred. He says, "Well, what do you, you mean take you cannot hundred?" But then, it what do you mean you can't take a thousand? Sorry. What What do you mean that you can't take a thousand? Because it makes me urinate a lot, even four hundred. I even tried once a week. It's even worse. Well, I uh, I would suggest that you speak to your doctor again about the urinating because I don't think it's due to the vitamin D. And I have a thyroid gland that works very fast. So I don't know if that concerns no. the thyroid gland. No, no. But I, I, I think if, if you're, you've had a check for diabetes. Sorry? Have you been tested for diabetes, extra no. sugar in the urine? No. No. Well, well, what if you're peeing that much? That's a test that should be done, uh, because I th this is not one of the things that vitamin D does. It does. It's not a diuretic. Yes, but if I don't take it, I don't urinate as much. Really? Yeah. Well, I I would ask your doctor to pursue this because there's something that seems odd about that. Uh, I mean, people can have strange reactions. I mean, I can't rule that out, but certainly this is not something that one commonly associates with vitamin D. Okay, thank you very uh, much. Okay, okay, you're welcome. Uh, we also have Jake on the line. Jake? Yes, hello. Hi, go ahead. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Hi, Joe. Hi, um, I'm calling about, you know, your favorite food is the scallops. And uh, I was just wondering now, you know, they're selling these sauce, uh, which you can cook in like two or three minutes. And I understand that one of the benefits of still cuddles is they're cooked um, very rough so that don't, uh, the sugar doesn't enter the blood in a spike. It takes a lot of mm -hmm. time to enter the blood. So now I'm wondering, they're selling these um, still cut. They Steel cut oats. Now you cook them in three minutes or two minutes, and they look mm -hmm. like been uh, like uh, pressed rolled like a roll, don't you? Right. I'm wondering, uh, can they gen genuinely steal these steel cut oats and the yes, uh, absolutely. Spike in the yes, no, no, they'll they'll work just the same. They've just been rolled. So, you know, essentially they've been squeezed into a flat shape so that they they absorb water more quickly because they have a larger surface area. But they will perform exactly yeah, the same know. way. But apparently, if, you know, the more you roll oats, the smaller they get, or especially like the instant oats is one. Well, they t they they're, they're very fast entering the blood, uh, spike the blood sugar. Yeah, no, I, so I, I, thought, I, I think this, uh, the steel cut oats, whatever shape they are, will perform properly. I wouldn't, uh, well, I'm, of course, you can always check that yourself. You can check your blood sugar, but I bet that there will be no spike. Okay, okay. thanks very much. Uh, okay. okay, yeah. Ask me, ask me okay, one. thank You're you. talking about vitamins. Yeah. vitamin D. I was just yes, wondering about, about vitamin B12. Uh, you know, yes. um, vegans take uh, supplements of B12 because they can't get it from anything other than animals. Yeah, vitamin B12 is only found uh, is found only in animal foods, so that people who are right. vegans and or vegetarians may may be deficient in it. 
So for them, it's a good idea right. to take a vitamin B12 supplement. Also, sometimes when you get older, the body uh, doesn't absorb vitamin B12 as well, and the supplement may be indicated then too. There's no no worry about B12. There's no downside to it. You don't overdose on it. It's a it's a water soluble well, vitamin, well, and if, if you take in too much, you'll just pee it out. Well, so I'm wondering about the, B12. Actually, is uh, how does it, where do they get from uh, in the supplement? It doesn't it come from a animal source. Where it comes from? Yeah, or it, 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 it can, yeah, it, it can be, it's made by bacteria. So they isolate it from a culture, bacteria. a bacterial culture. Okay. I think you're cutting out, you're cutting out here. And so I don't hear you properly. So I think we'll have to try another time with a better uh, phone line. Okay. So I'm, I'm still looking for the uh, answer to the question about the mummy's curse and uh King Tut and what Lord Carnarvon supposedly died of. Uh, if any of you were at uh, Expo 67, uh, you'll remember some artifacts from uh, from King Tut's tomb, which were in the Egyptian pavilion. And these are really, really uh, remarkable. I mean, especially the, the most famous one, of course, which is the golden uh, mask. And when you look at that, it's as if it was made today. Uh, the artwork on it is just phenomenal. I mean, the ancient Egyptians were uh, really, really clever people, clever artisans. And, you know, we, we tend to think of people of past civilizations as somehow being rather less clever than we are today. Not that we are so clever today, of course, seeing what is going on in the world. But... Um, uh, the fact is that that they had just as much brain power as we have today. It's just that they didn't have as much background knowledge. They didn't have the same kind of tools. But they were not any less smart than we are today. We'll check uh, what's going on in traffic, and we'll be right back. Uh, John thinks that uh, Lord Carnarvon died uh, of an infected cut that he got when he was shaving. That's not what I've uh, learned about this. Although it is closely related, he did die of some kind of infection, but, but from what I've seen, it was due to something else other than a cut from shaving. So the, the question is still out there, what Lord Carnarvon, the financer of the King Tut uh, tomb opening, uh, what he died from. You know, the, this past week, of course, was very exciting for us in science because of the announcement of the Nobel Prizes. <clears throat> and uh, obviously, I always look forward to the Chemistry Nobel Prize. And it was a, a fascinating one uh, this week, uh, given out uh, this year, for this year, of course. And uh, I struggled a little bit with trying to explain that in a simplified way, although I did put an explanation on um, on our website, but let me struggle with it a little bit here more because I think you should really understand this. Uh, in order to really get into this discussion, we have to take a look at what the word quantum means. It derives from Latin and it comes from the Latin word for amount so that if something is quantifiable, it means that it can be measured. So, 
in order to appreciate this year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry, which was awarded to doctors Mungi Bawendi of MIT, Louis Bruce of Columbia University, and Alexei Ekimov, who is in the U.S. at Nanocrystals Technology Incorporated, uh, we have to have some understanding of, of quantum because this Nobel Prize was given for something called quantum dots. So yeah, here we have to deal with this troublesome word quantum. Well, a quantum is usually defined as the smallest discrete unit of something that can be measured. As an example, quantum of electricity is the electron because there's no smaller unit of electricity. Quantum of light is a photon, cannot be further subdivided. But in chemistry, the term is used to describe particles that are so small that their properties are very different from that that is exhibited on the largest scale. On the quantum scale, things are measured in nanometers. That's a billionth of a meter. And when particles are of that small size, they have different physical properties than on a larger scale. For example, gold particles, which are size of nanometers, are usually yellow in, are not yellow in color like regular gold, but they're ruby red. So what are quantum dots? You can think of them as tiny flecks of a substance that behave differently from larger pieces of the same substance. So here, really, size does matter. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there were arguments about the number of angels that can stand on the head of a pin. Well, I don't know about that. But we can quantify the quantum dots that would cover the head of a pin, about half a million. Think about that. These quantum dots are so small, half a million of them could be on the head of a pin. And these quantum dots have some amazing properties. They can absorb light of one color and emit a different color. And that color emitted depends on the size of the particle. And this year's Nobel laureates were recognized for explaining this phenomenon and for developing a technique to manufacture quantum dots. Now, this is not just a matter of academic interest. If you've ever marveled at the accurate bright colors of a QLCD television screen, you should know that the Q stands for quantum dot. They're also used in computer screens, lasers, and solar panels. Quantum computing uses silicon quantum dots that have superior electronic properties to their larger counterparts and perform calculations at absolutely fantastic speeds. Quantum dots can also cross the blood-brain barrier and deliver drugs to the brain. Now, as far as I'm concerned, there's yet another bonus that comes with awarding of the Nobel Prize for quantum dots. And this is one that science communicators will appreciate. The public will see the word quantum used in its proper sense and hopefully bring to light its frequent misuse. Health guru Deepak Chopra speaks of quantum healing. Well, I would think you would want macro healing, not quantum healing. Another bit of Chopra wisdom, quote, viewing your body from the perspective of quantum physics opens up new modes of understanding and experience the body and its aging. The practical essence of this new understanding is that human beings can reverse their aging. Well, that's a quantum leap of nonsense. Oops, I just misused that word.
It's not a quantum leap. It's a giant leap. A quantum leap would be a very small leap. The James Bond movie, Quantum of Solace, pretty good movie, makes a bit more sense since it refers to the small amount of solace that comes from taking revenge for the killing of a loved one. And now for a final correct use of the term. The work of this year's Chemistry Nobel Prize winners for development of quantum dots will have far more than a quantum impact. Very well deserved. Uh, I've talked before about the uh, prize that was given for uh, medicine and physiology this year. That was highly anticipated, and uh, we thought that it would actually be given out last year. It went to Kathleen Carrico and Drew Weissman, who were instrumental in developing the COVID-19 vaccine. I say instrumental in developing it because they did make a key contribution, but there were hundreds of other scientists who in the last uh, 30 years or so worked on mRNA vaccines and made contributions. And it's always difficult to award the prize to, to you know, one or two or three specific people when in fact many others were involved in the development. But of course they do have to choose someone. In this case though, it's surprising though that they chose only two leaving one vacant slot because it's possible, of course, to award the Nobel Prize to three people. That's the limit. And there are a number of very appropriate candidates who could have been included in, in the prize. Uh, I think that that was not done because there were just so many candidates and uh, uh, they just couldn't think of who the third one should be. Whereas uh, Carrico and Weissman really did make a pivotal discovery and everyone agrees that they were, you know, very key players in this game. So the Nobel Prize was well-deserved. And the mRNA vaccines that we have for COVID, which of course have worked very well, and now, you know, we are set for the next next uh, uh, version of these, which will cover some of the uh, variants. And so that, again, was a very well-deserved uh, Nobel Prize. All right. Well, we've, uh, we're have coming to the end of the show. We're running out of time here. But uh, uh, just with one last thought about, you know, the happenings on the other side of, of, of the world, you know, it's been said that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Well, freedom fighters do not go around killing 260 innocent people in a field where they were listening to music and celebrating a festival. Freedom fighters do not rape and pillage and murder. Those are not descriptions of freedom fighters those are descriptions of terrorists. So let's get the terminology straight. You've been listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>